All right, as I mentioned, a lot of our choir members are sick, apparently, so they're not going to sing the anthem this morning, which is one of my favorite songs, a Matt Maher song, Christ has Risen from the Dead, fits our text perfectly, so since the choir is not going to be able to do it, I thought I would just uh, do it. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> I had you there for a second. No, I'm not. But Bill Sherman is going to come and I'm just kidding. Bill's not going to sing either. We're not going to have that song. Maybe uh, in the future the choir can, can help us with that beautiful song. Uh, but we are going to finish up a really important passage, a wonderful text in 1 Corinthians 15. I know we have a lot of college students and some visitors here uh, who haven't been able to walk with us through this whole book of 1 Corinthians. But this is really like the climax of the whole letter to the church in Corinth. Paul is, is, is giving them just the meat of what they need to be a healthy church. And his heart is on the line here. And we're gonna see that clearly in this text for today. And we're gonna see that what the outcome of the gospel is. The gospel that we believe naturally leads somewhere. And Paul is gonna show us the end of the story of, of everything ever. He's gonna show us where the story of Genesis to Revelation comes to a conclusion. He's gonna show us where all this is heading. The Apostle Paul is wrapping up this long letter to a, a pretty troubled church. You know, I, I read 1 Corinthians and I think, you know, Woodmont's pretty healthy. We got a lot of things good going on. Uh, he's writing this letter that, you know, he loves this church. He helped plant this church in this very important area, a very important trade route uh, that went through the, the isthmus of Corinth. And yes, this church has plenty of issues, but Paul is deeply convinced that if they will just keep the gospel at the center of all that they do as a church, they will be okay. Remember at the beginning of the chapter, he says these uh, words to them in verses one to four. I wanna remind you of the gospel which I preached and you received, the good news, the gospel in which you have taken your stand and by which you are being saved. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. How many of you have heard that Christ died for our sins? You heard that before? Maybe, maybe it hasn't really hit you in, in your heart of hearts. Maybe today you need to let that sink in. Christ died for our sins. Let that sink in this morning. I delivered to you first importance that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. <clears throat> that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he goes on to exegete, to exposit what the, the practical implications of the resurrection are. That Jesus was raised on the third day, just like the scriptures foretold. And that's the gospel in a nutshell. And that's, that's the core of our faith because it's the power of our salvation. And then he goes on to say, you guys say you believe this, right? You were baptized after acknowledging that this is your confession, the gospel, but you still have some kind of Greek philosophies floating around in your head and this idea that when you die, your spirit will be released from your body and that's the end. And, and sadly, a lot of Christians today believe the same thing. We have these Plato, Platonic ideas 
that, that our body and soul will be separated when we die, and that's the end of the story. But that's not real hope. So he corrects them with the biblical doctrine of resurrection that is real hope. It's the hope that says that this world matters, that, that physical things like bodies matter, and, and that physical stuff is actually spiritual stuff too, and that one day when Jesus comes back into our world, this will all be made new again. That's what the Old Testament prophets were pointing to all along, new creation. But these civilized, you know, cultured Greeks, you know, we're in the city. My friends that pastor like in, you know, Spring Hill or like Columbia, I'm like, it's different, okay? It's just different in the city. You know, we are urban, we're sophisticated, we have Vanderbilt students, we have Belmont students here, we have all kinds, we have professors, we have a bunch of PhDs in our congregation and scientists who are submitting papers like Olivia did this week, all kinds of important uh, people in our church. And so we tend to say, yeah, these ideas are a little, you know, maybe backwoods. We don't really believe these things. That's kind of how the church in Corinth was. They said, that sounds a little too far-fetched, you know, zombies, people rising from the dead. We don't really believe that stuff. I was talking with a couple people at our dinner table at the fellowship dinner on Wednesday night, and one of them said, man, this 1 Corinthians 15 stuff, we don't hear this a lot about resurrection, about bodily resurrection. We don't get a lot of that. And uh, someone else at the table said, you know, why is it so controversial? Bodies rising from the dead. I mean, we believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I said, that's Paul's point, exactly. He's telling them, you guys say that you believe Paul rose from the dead, then why is it so far-fetched to believe that you are gonna rise also? Just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so will you be. And that, you know, to believe that means you have to go on faith. And here's the thing, the Christian life has to be lived by faith, not by sight. It's something we have to take on faith. Real, robust Christian hope comes from our faith, from putting our trust, from betting everything on the clear teaching of Scripture that one glorious day, Jesus will break back into our world with a billion angels swirling in behind him, ready to make this world into a new creation. Old earth and old heaven will pass away, and somehow they will become one in this newly recreated heaven and earth. And everyone who's died before then will somehow physically be put back together. And those who died apart from being born again into Jesus Christ and the salvation that God freely offers us will die a second death. That's what Revelation 20 is talking about. That's why Dr. Sherman always says those who are born once die twice, and those who are born twice only die once. That's what he's talking about, the second death. And then we're going to kick off the party in the new creation when Jesus returns with a big wedding celebration. I love weddings. They're so much fun. We're going to have the ultimate wedding celebration at the marriage supper of the Lamb and his bride, the church. We get to celebrate the biggest wedding feast of all time, and we're going to reign forever in glory with our fellow heir, Jesus Christ, who will reign with us in the new heavens and the new earth. This matters greatly that we understand this, that we hold this as our hope. 
Because if, if we don't believe this, then the whole point of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins is what? So we can die and go to heaven? Why not just drink the Kool-Aid now then? What's the point of our physical embodied existence now? I mentioned last week my boy N.T. Wright, who I, I love. He, he said people who believe in the resurrection, in God making a whole new world in which everything will be set right at last. No more Teslas crashing, no more, I mean, no more poverty, no more injustice, no more looking for a job, no more worries about your kids, no more copperheads biting your dogs, no matter what it is that you're going through. These are situations that are real, okay, in our church. All those things will be set right at last. People who believe that are unstoppably motivated to work for that new world now in the present. Now in the present. That's why we pray for God's kingdom to come and for his will to be done as it is in heaven and one day will be in the new heaven and new earth. We pray that prayer as participants in that work. We, we participate with our lives now as we wait for the day when we will no longer have to pray that prayer because there will be no distinction between heaven and earth. So our text for today really reveals to us Paul's heart as he writes to these confused, yes, but beloved brothers and sisters in Corinth who he cares so deeply for. He's writing these fundamental things that he wants them to build their faith upon. Why, why is he writing these words? What's Paul's motivation? I think it's important to remember that he's writing, especially here, as a pastor. He's writing as a shepherd. Steve's really quick with that, isn't he? He's really, to get to that. <laughs> so the outline for today is called Paul the Pastor, lovingly helping us live into God's reality. You know, a pastor is a shepherd, and we see here how lovingly shepherding Paul is to these people in Corinth. There's four main parts to the text, and the first one is Pastor Paul helping us to deal with our skepticism. I know some of you don't really wrestle with skepticism, but I've told you before, I do. Man, I am prone towards skepticism. I, I don't believe anybody. <laughs> I, I, I'm like a trust but verify kind of person, you know. I have a really hard time just trusting. I'm so quick to be skeptical. And that's true with, you know, supernatural things too. When someone claims a miracle has happened, sometimes I'm like, really? Seriously, I don't know about that. It's hard for me sometimes to explain the, the supernatural things that I really do believe, that God raised Jesus from the dead, for example, to my friends who are atheists, or my, my neighbor who's agnostic, or, or my other friends who believe that, that there is no life after death. They certainly don't believe that there's not life after life after death, like we do, that's what 1 Corinthians 15 is about. If you missed that the last two weeks, go back and watch those sermons. So Paul gently helps our skepticism, not by saying, stop it, just believe it. That's not what he does. He gently gives us a picture. He gives us the analogy of a seed. Look at verses 35 to 38. But someone, a, a skeptic, Nathan, will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You know, in our family, it's usually May, our 10-year-old, who has these kind of questions. Well, how, what about the dinosaurs, Dad? 
Uh, how do you explain that? You know, she's questioning all these. It's a great questions to ask. How are the dead raised? He didn't say, what a foolish question. Stop asking questions. He didn't say that. He does say it. He says, you foolish person. But he doesn't say, stop asking. He says, that's a foolish question. <laughs> you foolish person. What you sow doesn't come to life unless it dies. You know this if you've ever planted a seed. What you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he's chosen to each kind of seed, its own body. He's saying, come on, guys, you know this. Look at what a seed does. I'm not much of a gardener, okay? Morgan and I are kind of, you know, black thumbs. We don't really, uh, but it's amazing to me. Every year, like in the, you know, spring, we always go to Home Depot and like buy some seeds and have a little, you know, planters in our backyard. And, you know, Jude planted carrots this year and watered them faithfully all summer. And when you see those little sprouts come up, it's like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. You plant these little tiny seeds in the dirt and something green and beautiful comes up out of the dirt. It's amazing. He's saying that's what happens to our bodies. Our dead bodies go in the dirt and something beautiful and new is what comes out. I think it's helpful at graveside services, I think I've heard Dr. Sherman do this, uh, point to the casket and say, it's important to remember that's, that's not your loved one. That's only where they used to live. That's just where they used to live. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, but that's not the end of the story. The truth is that they will be raised someday, but it will be nothing like the old body. It will be a miraculously different body. How can we trust that? We can trust it because God is the ultimate designer. That's point B on your outline. God is the ultimate designer. We have the seed analogy, and now we know that we can trust that we are going to have this new body because God is the ultimate designer. You know, I love, everybody loves Apple products. You know, Apple products are so cool, and you know, Marketing people tell us that Apple really understands that humans are drawn to design. Design matters to us, the aesthetics of something. We want something sleek and cool and modern. That, that matters to us. The, the head designer for Apple from like 97 to 2019 who basically designed all the products that we uh, have used in that time period is a guy named Johnny Ive. He's a British guy, and he's a rock star in the world of design. People who are into design, they know the name Johnny Ive because he had a prominent role in designing these, these Apple products that have become so iconic and easily recognized in our culture. But God is better. God is better than Johnny Ive. Look at verses 39 to 41. For not all flesh is the same, but there's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly one is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. God designs all these things. Have you ever stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon and just marveled at God's design? Have you ever been so overwhelmed? Have you stood at the, the bottom of the Matterhorn and looked at the mountains and said, God's the ultimate designer. He knows what he's doing. He, he has a plan for everything he's designed. He's in control of everything. 
and he has sovereignly designed everything. The word we use to say that God's in control of everything is sovereign. That means not a molecule moves in our universe apart from God's sovereign design. And here's the thing, in creation, he, he sovereignly displayed his design prowess. And if he's done that, then we can trust that if he made a different kind of body for everything in creation, then we can trust that he certainly can make a resurrected body for you and for me. We gotta, we gotta remember that God's not limited like us humans. Sometimes we don't believe God can really do these things that the Bible says he will do. But he's not bound by the laws of physics. God designs whatever pleases him as he has chosen it to be. Like verse 38 says, as he has chosen it to be. He's gonna do the same thing with our new human bodies. Next, Pastor Paul helps us to see the difference between our old earthly bodies and our resurrected bodies by giving us four key contrasts. Four key contrasts. I don't love how the ESV translates some of these, uh, so I've given you some different words in your outline to hopefully give you a fuller understanding of what the Bible is, is really saying here. Start in verse 42. So it is, it, so is it with the resurrection of the dead? What is sown perishable, what is raised is imperishable. I've said it before, okay, I'm not a farmer. I don't, I don't plant a lot of seeds. We, we have a little planters in the back, but I understand the word sown here. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think sown means to put it in the dirt. So what Paul's referring to is our burial, our, our, our bodies going into the dirt or being cremated or whatever, but our bodies dying physically. And then they're raised, so I'm, I'm using the word buried in your outline to get at what he's really saying. The first contrast is that what's buried in decay, perishable, open to decay, is raised impervious. Home ownership is great. You know, I love owning a home, but you know, when you're renting, it's kind of nice when something breaks to be able to call the landlord and be like, hey, this is broken, come fix it. When you own a home, guess who it's up to? Up to me. And I'm not handy at all. <clears throat> I'm great. I'm grateful for friends who are handy. And I know <clears throat> like Logan built his own bathroom like at their house. That's great. I'm sure Christy helped you. Uh, but like I'm not handy at all. So when something breaks, and inevitably, you know, wood starts to rot and metal starts to rust over time. And that's when I usually call Ron and say, hey, what do I do with this? How do I fix this? And Ron is always good to help me with it. The same thing happens with our bodies. I was talking with uh, Laura Haskin coming in this morning. She said, I'm a young lady up here, but everything down here is screaming at me and saying, you're not young anymore. Our bodies decay. Our bodies are open to decay and they wear out over time. But here's the thing, the, the truth is that when we're raised impervious, there will be no more sickness. There'll be no more rolled ankles. Morgan said she almost fell and Brad had to help her up because uh, she rolled an ankle. Uh, that won't happen with our new bodies. We'll be impervious to, to plantar fasciitis, which I've been wrestling with for the last year. We'll be impervious to cancer, impervious to diabetes, and impervious to COVID. No more COVID, praise God. The second contrast is in the first part of verse 43. This old body is gonna be sown in dishonor it's raised in glory. Here in the West, I don't know how it is in India, Crosby's. Where are the Crosby's? Right here. 
I don't know how it is. Is there a shame culture like there is in like, okay, yeah. So like in a lot of Eastern countries, they have this shame culture and like honor. It's something in the West, like, like my kids, they're not ashamed of anything. <laughs> you know, they don't have this uh, kind of shame culture that our Eastern brothers and sisters uh, have. But the, the word really for dishonor means humiliation is what it means. Our bodies are, are open to humiliation. I can relate to that. Uh, sometimes humorously, I can relate to being humiliated, and sometimes not humorously. Sometimes I, I've said terrible things and I'm embarrassed. Sometimes I've just stepped right in it. I can relate to that. The opposite of that feeling is glory. It, it, we don't really have a category for that either, but it's the feeling of triumph. I'm a big sports guy, so I've put it in your uh, outline. It's the feeling of being a champion. Of, of shooting your age, Jerry, when you're out there on the golf course, you know? It's the feeling of, of chipping in for eagle from 100 yards out, you know? That's, that's the idea here, is that you're raised a champion. Do we have that one, Steve? I bet we do. There it is. Buried in humiliation and raised a champion. That's the feeling of glory, of triumph. The world has beaten our old bodies down, okay? But we're gonna rise as overcomers in triumph and in glory. 1 Peter 5, 4 tells us, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's the crown they would give to a champion, uh, to somebody who, who won the race, would receive that crown of glory. That's the idea here. When we're raised, when, when Jesus appears, we're gonna be receiving that overcomer's crown. Third, the rest of verse 43 says that our old bodies are sown in weakness, but they're raised in power. I like that translation, I left that one alone. We don't realize how weak we really are. You know, I was really proud of myself the last couple of weeks, I've made it to the gym three times and feeling, you know, fit, but you know, even at our fittest, even the, the, the winner of the CrossFit Games is, is crowned the fittest man, the fittest woman on earth, right? Even as fit as they are, they get sick. Their bodies wear out, they break down, they have injuries. A lot of them have had several <laughs> injuries, right? The fittest person on earth is still a feeble and frail person. Not so our new bodies. They're gonna keep going in power, praise God. Finally, verse 44, my earthly body is sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, then there's a spiritual body. That translation is really not helpful, okay? Uh, it's not talking about a difference between spiritual and physical. That's not what he's really talking about. A better translation is that we'll be buried in an earthly human body and we're gonna be raised as a body built by the Holy Spirit, a body configured by the Holy Spirit. This new body's gonna have this spiritual DNA coursing through it that is uninterrupted, impervious to sin. Our bodies will no longer be at war with the Holy Spirit like Paul talks about in Romans. Our new bodies will be impervious to decay because of that spiritual DNA. They're gonna be victorious instead of humiliated because of our spiritual DNA. They're gonna be powerful instead of feeble and frail because of that spiritual DNA. Lord, haste the day, amen? But how can we know that God will do this? How can we be assured? We just saying, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. How can we have that assurance? 
that one day we will indeed be raised with this spirit-produced body. Any good pastor is gonna bring words of assurance to a people who are fearful and worrisome. We need encouraging words from our pastor, and Paul knows this. So in verses 45 to 50, he gives us the assurance, the best assurance of all, the assurance of Jesus, the assurance of Christ's ability to make us new. That's point number three on your outline. Assuring us of Christ's ability to make us new. Look at verse 45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Paul's quoting, he's a good pastor. He's using scripture as he always does. He's quoting from Genesis chapter two, verse seven, to show how our ancient ancestor, Adam, the first human, became a living being, which really means a human person. And we've inherited that kind of personhood from our ancestor, Adam. And the Greek philosophers believed that people were born good. A lot of people in our world still believe this, that people are born good, that we only become you know, sinful by being stained by the world that we live in. People still believe that, but Paul reverses that order in this section. Look at verse 46. It's not the spiritual that's first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust, a man who would have no life if God hadn't breathed it into his nostrils. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. That's why at Ash Wednesday we say, remember, you are dust, and to dust you will return. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as, we have, been just as we, we have borne the image of the man of dust, so we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. You know, Adam wasn't the, the, the perfect, life-giving, spirit-produced body. He fell quickly into sin, just like we all do. But Jesus comes and is raised as the preview of what we will be, the man of heaven, that we will also inherit as his people. That's comforting. Even more comforting is that we know that our earthly bodies can't enter into the new creation. Only our new bodies can. When we rise like Jesus, we'll experience the kingdom of God in a complete sense. That's what verse 50 says. I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable, the, the decayed body, inherit the impervious body. And finally, Paul closes this section by casting a vision of future hope for us. A good pastor casts a vision of future hope that we have. Look at verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. That means something that has yet to be revealed to us. Something that, he means I'll pull back the curtain and let you in on a secret. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Even those who haven't died yet when Jesus comes are going to receive resurrection bodies. In a moment, verse 52, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. 
the vision is that we will be changed. He says it twice in here. We're going to be changed. We can't change ourselves. It's passive. It says we will be changed. You know, the first step in, in recovery, CR, friends, oh, Eddie, I'm pointing to Eddie. Eddie's sick. He's not here today. The first step is to admit that what? That you're powerless and to turn to God as a higher power. Only God can change us. And he will, in fact, in this life and in the next. So what? What are the, the practical implications? What are the practical consequences of knowing about that change? That's our next point. What are the consequences? Look at verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that's written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? He's mocking death to death's face, staring death in the eyes and mocking him. Paul is quoting scripture again, this time from Isaiah 25 and Hosea 13 to show us that these prophets mocked death as well. They knew where this was heading. It's because God revealed the end to them that he was gonna destroy our ancient enemy, death, forever. Yes, death is a terrible thing. Jesus prayed in the garden, what? He said, let this cup pass from me. He didn't wanna die, why? Because death is separation from God. He saw death as God-forsakenness. And guess what, he did that. He said, not my will, but thine be done. He took the God-forsakenness upon himself so that we don't have to. He went through the awfulness of death for us so that he was separated from God in that moment when he prayed and said, Lord, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, he was separated from God so that we don't have to. And now we can say, oh, death, where is your victory? He was forsaken by God so we can be accepted by God. This leads us to the most glorious verses in this whole chapter, verses 56 and 57. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the law shows us just how far short we come of God's standard. It shows us how sinful, how broken, how flawed we really are, and that sin necessarily leads to death. It inevitably ends in death. It's a hopeless and terrible situation, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory over sin and law and death through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's the gospel in a nutshell again. An overflowing praise, an overflowing gratitude is the only appropriate response. How then shall we live? Pastor Paul gives us a solid application, again, as a good pastor does in the last verse, verse 58. Therefore, in light of all of this, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You know, when I started driving, my parents signed me up for driver's ed at Franklin High School, and you know, you had a coach who just read his paper while you know, I was driving around, and he didn't really care what I did, and 
uh, one thing that I remember they told us in driver's ed, I still think about it, is aim high. Do you remember that? Aim high. When you're steering, you should aim for a point further up on the road so that you, if you focus on the immediate part of the road in front of you, you might go off the road because you're aiming too low. What Paul is telling us here is that when we aim high with the end in mind, that that's when we stay on the right course, that we stay on the right trajectory if we will aim with the end in mind, if we will live our lives on the trajectory that points to the new creation, to resurrection bodies, if we hold on to resurrection hope, it will enable us to stand firm, immovable against the storms of this life, knowing that all this is heading somewhere and that somewhere is good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, we who live on, on this side of, of the resurrection, we who believe in resurrection hope, we who believe in God making a whole new world in which all the wrongs are gonna be set right at last, let's be unstoppably motivated to work for that new creation now. He who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you've shown us the end, that you've pulled back the curtain and allowed us to get a glimpse of what you're gonna do someday. God, help us to believe this in our heart of hearts. Help us not to be jaded or skeptical or cynical. Help us to understand that resurrection means that all this is going somewhere, that justice will be had that we don't have to do it because you're gonna do it, that we can't do it, but we can play our part now and your glory will be on full display for all to see. Lord, for those who are struggling today, may you remind them of this vision. May we live with an eternal perspective so that we don't sweat the small things and it's all small things, God, if it's not part of your kingdom. And may we strive for what really matters May we live knowing that only what's done for Christ will last, that everything else is, is momentary and fleeting. Help us to understand what really is significant. May we share the gospel with our friends and neighbors and coworkers who are lost and searching with urgency, knowing that this life is but a mist that appears for a while and is gone tomorrow. Give us an urgent sense that comes with an eternal perspective. Lord, we thank you again for, for showing us what the end is gonna be like, and we can't wait for those resurrected bodies. We pray all this with gratitude, and the, the grateful, grateful for the power of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.